Thank you to Pastor Josh, to the musicians, to Dick for leading us in prayer. Thank you all for joining us this morning. And we don't forget those of you who are joining via our live stream, and we welcome you. Um, Everything in life is a matter of perspective. It really is. And uh, I know that there is some discouragement about reducing the number to 55 people. Well, hey, I'm old enough to know when 30 came to church and 7 came to an evening service. So this is like a revival for me. Um, Don't be discouraged. And the many of you who have joined us online, we welcome you. The couple of men in the church are doing a Bible study with me. I'm doing with them. And uh, we started studying recently 1 Peter. And you read in 1 Peter his address to the readers, and he says, to the elect exiles scattered... And many of us thought that takes on a whole new meaning today. Uh, It's not Rome that has scattered the church, but uh, through the safety precautions and the wisdom of uh, those in charge of our health, uh, we've had to meet this way. Would you turn in your Bibles to the first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Last week I had the privilege of drawing your attention to a prophecy written by the prophet Micah some 700 years before the birth of Christ in which he prophesied that even in spite of the darkness of the days that the people were living in, he gave them a hopeful sign And that hopeful sign was that in a little town called Bethlehem, there would arise a king and a shepherd, a shepherd king. Matthew picks up the theme of the kingship of Jesus Christ. He picks up the theme that Jesus Christ comes from the lineage of David, As promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the scriptures say that on the throne of David will remain a king forever and ever. Most of the time in the Old Testament when you read the word everlasting or forever, that's pointing to Jesus. That's pointing to Jesus. It's pointing to the fact that the promises are found in him. And Matthew picks this up. Uh, I've had some wonderful opportunities this week to, to, to appreciate Matthew more than I have ever, be, ever before. And of course, when we read the Gospels, we read actual accounts of events and narration. Most of us know that to properly interpret a book in the Bible, we need to know the historical and cultural and literary and grammatical sense of the author. 
But we also have to understand, in addition to that, how the book fits into the overall scheme of the Bible story, the biblical narrative, or what some people call biblical theology. <clears throat> and oh my, when you read a gospel like Matthew and see how he fits it in to the whole narrative of Scripture, it takes you from a level of just understanding and reading stories to an appreciation of how the Holy Spirit has designed and, and directed the inspiration of these books so that even their structure and the way they're put together are all pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ and all his glory. And Matthew does that so well. And Matthew picks up the main theme. There are sub-themes in here. Matthew portrays Jesus as a... As the ultimate Moses, the ultimate lawgiver. You remember the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew picks up uh, uh, Jesus as the ultimate David, and you find that in the birth narratives. But Matthew's main theme is to present to his Jewish readers that Jesus is king. All the songs this morning pointed to that idea that Jesus Christ is king. I doubt if I'll say a single thing that you haven't read and understood. I'm not frustrated by that. I hope you're not either. I doubt if you'll learn a single thing new. But I pray that you'll be refreshed and bathed in the glory again of our Savior who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Matthew starts, and I won't read it. I remember one time giving an assignment to one of the men of the church to read Matthew chapter 1, and I didn't uh, relish his task at all. Yeah. But you'll notice that there are, in the first 16 verses, there is portrayed for us the lineage of David, uh, of Jesus, and going all the way back to Abraham, showing that this godly seed was preserved all through the Old Testament. This godly seed that would produce Jesus Christ was preserved in all the ups and downs and travesties and tragedies of the Old Testament. The purpose that Matthew has, I believe, is to show the legitimacy that this Jesus could sit on David's throne because he had the human lineage and genealogy. And so we read in verse 16 as he comes to a close, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. In other words, through jo Joseph and Mary, we have the lineage preserved so that this one born is in fact that great son of David who would sit on the throne of David forever and ever and ever and rule over all. And so this, these 16 verses talk about fathers giving birth, fathers giving birth, fathers giving birth. And one might assume, not you folks, because you're, now this is not new news to you, but one might assume, if you, if you get inside Matthew's head a little bit, one might assume that when he comes to the birth of Jesus from the father and mother of Joseph and Mary, that was just a normal birth. 
just like all the other ones. And you all know what I mean by a normal birth. A husband and wife coming together in the act of marriage and the procreation of a child. And you could assume as you read through these, especially if you hadn't read this before, you suddenly come to verse 16 and, okay, yeah, so Joseph and Mary, they had a baby. A normal birth. But Matthew needs to clarify. Matthew makes it certain that you and I don't go home thinking that this is just a normal, reproductive human act. And so in verse 18, we read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now if you're a skeptic, <laughs> you'd go, what other way is there? You know? Think about it. What, what do you mean? There's another way to have a baby? Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And now we're going to read verses 18 through to the end of the chapter. So I hope you'll follow along as I read. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Please pray with me. We have before us, Lord, by your mercy and grace, through the blood and the death and the persecution of our forefathers, we have before us a Bible in a language that we can understand. And through these men and women and the Reformation who recovered the God-given right of children of God to be able to read the Scriptures and understand it, and to worship you, and to commune with you as individuals and as a church. This privilege of the communion of saints, the priesthood of believers, that you bought for us by your shed blood, 
was also paid for by the lives of men and women so that we could gather in this assembly and in our homes and by your spirit all be together right now at this instant and have a Bible in front of us that we can read. The very word of God inspired, authoritative, not a single error. Lord, help us, I pray, to understand the doctrine that's contained in this. Help us to be corrected by it. Perhaps you would need to rebuke us this morning. But we ask that you would instruct us in righteousness. That everything said and done, thought and felt, expressed, would give glory and praise to you and would be profitable for us. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If I was to put a title on the message, it would be this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. Matthew wants to emphasize that fact. I hope you keep your scriptures open. I hope you keep your eyes on your, on your Bible. It's a, just an absolute act of grace that you have one. I want to show you, first of all, how strongly Matthew wanted to impress upon his readers that the birth of Jesus Christ was unique and different. This is something, by the way, for those of you who study God's Word, wish to teach God's Word, you need to look for these things. We all need to look for these things, especially within biblical narrative. Look for what is emphasized by the author, because usually what you see to be emphasized by the author is what is being emphasized by the Holy Spirit and what you should emphasize. I'm going to show you that at least seven times Matthew keeps pressing the point on the uniqueness of the birth of Jesus. There's at least seven, just in this short passage. And that's why then this becomes the message for this Sunday, because it was Matthew's message. Notice, first of all, I'll give you one. In verse 18, Before they came together, she was found to be with child. Again, this is not new to you, but I want you to understand that the early readers, this would have been absolutely shocking news. Before Joseph and Mary came together in a sexual union, Mary was found to be pregnant. That's stunning. And then secondly, the second emphasis that Matthew raises is in the last part of verse 18, he says, this is from the Holy Spirit. You have a pregnant woman that's not had a sexual relationship with a man, but her pregnancy is from the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. It's stunning. If you allow the weight of that to fall, that's stunning. And then thirdly, just to reinforce this, Matthew tells the story about Joseph and saying that he's a just man, and so he's resolved to divorce her quietly. Now that's a pregnant 
excuse the pun, that's a pregnant statement. In the day that he lived, if, if Mary had been found to be pregnant as an unmarried woman, the father of her child would have been found and the both of them would have been executed. You understand that? This is a unique anomaly that Joseph would not have her before those authorities and have them stoned. Joseph knew something different was going on here. Because he was a just man. He would have sought justice. And because he understood what was going on, what was just for him, was maybe he should put her away, divorce her quietly. But fourthly, my fourth emphasis I see here is the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and in verse 20 says, don't fear to take Mary as your wife. Do you see how unique this is? The husband, who is not the father, is now given permission by God Marry the lady. Don't fear. This is a huge anomaly, a huge difference. And he reminds Joseph, in, or the angel reminds Joseph, that what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Again, the emphasizing, twice Matthew emphasizes, from the Holy Spirit, from the Holy Spirit. In verse 22, Matthew chooses to press the point further by saying, this is all in fulfillment of the prophet. In fact, he quotes two prophets, Isaiah and Micah, to say this is, this was all, this is already figured out and planned for. That's my sixth emphasis that I see from the author. And lastly, in verse 24 and 25, we read, he did take her as wife. He did marry her. But he did not have sexual relationships with her until after Jesus was born. Seven uh, print points of emphasis that, that Moses, or that, that, that uh, Matthew chooses to impress upon us, the reader, that the birth of Jesus was just not like the other births. The birth of Jesus happened this way. And in summary, I would say that Matthew is pressing the point to us, and maybe this, if you're a note keeper, this is the main point. Matthew is pressing the point that Mary's birth was a miraculous conception of the Holy Spirit and that she was a virgin. That's exactly what the Apostles' Creed says. Now, unfortunately, you attend a non-conformist, non-traditionalist church, like a Baptist church. But one of the things we miss out on is some of the creedal affirmations that are important to our faith. And those of you who knew the Apostles' Creed and 
and remember. We'll remember that the second tenet of the Apostles' Creed is that I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, what? Conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Now, I'm going to say something here that I don't want you to kind of go nuts on me. Don't send me any emails on this. I'm arguing that from Matthew, it is not enough information to simply say that Jesus is born of a virgin. That's true, but it's not enough. It doesn't fill out the, the doctrine as it should be. Matthew and the Apostles' Creed make it very clear the principle, the doctrine that we are embracing is that Jesus Christ was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. That statement is a complete statement. Mary, as a virgin, became pregnant through the miraculous creative act of God himself. I know you know that. But that's what the point that Matthew's trying to make. He's not trying to say anything else. He wants you to leave here this morning having had your mind engrossed in the Word. And when you think of Christmas and you think of the birth of Jesus, you think conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Some of you know that uh, my daughter attended Peace River Bible Institute in Sexsmith, Alberta. In the town of Sexsmith, Alberta, is a building. And on the building is these words. The Church of Immaculate Conception. This is a sidebar, by the way. This is free. It doesn't come with the cost of the sermon. I'm here to tell you that the Roman Catholic doctrine of immaculate conception has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. You might have thought it did. The Roman Catholic Church, in a heretical, wrong way, teaches that Mary was immaculately conceived. They're trying to get around the idea that how could Jesus be born without a sin nature so an earlier pontiff decided that the way to get around that is to make Mary not only a virgin, but Mary does not have original sin. She's perfect. And so don't be dis dissuaded when you see that. The term immaculate conception is heretically applied to Mary. Mary was a human nature with a sin nature like you and I. One of the great Christmas songs. There's so many great Christmas songs. One of the great Christmas songs was written, was written in a modern, modern era. Mark Lowry was one of the co-authors. Mary, did you know? Mary, did you know that song? 
Mary, did you know that the one that you deliver will deliver you? I can't explain the miraculous birth of Jesus Christ. I cannot. I doubt if you can. But the Bible is certain. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Wayne Grudem writes, God in his wisdom ordained a combination of human and divine influence in the birth of Christ so that his full humanity would be evident to us from the fact of his ordinary human birth from a human mother and his full deity would be evident from the fact of his conception in Mary's womb by a powerful work of the Holy Spirit. That's why I'm being nitpicky this morning and saying that as we speak of this birth, we should include both facets. Conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. His conception shows his deity. His virgin birth shows his humanity. And we need to have both. Why? I'm going to ask two questions. Why did Jesus have to be born a man? And the second question I'm going to ask is, why did he have to be born God? And when I answer those questions, then I'll bring this together in summary. But let me give you, first of all, three reasons why Jesus had to be born a man. Number one, our Savior had to die for us. God cannot die. God cannot die. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The guilt imparted to our human parents Adam and Eve, and passed to us through the sin nature, required death. Our sins require capital punishment. And in order for someone to die for our sins, they had to be a man. God could not die. You do understand that if God was, would die, you and I would look in an instant like those balloons that we blow up and then we just let go. We would just disintegrate into air. We are held together by the power of God. God cannot die. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6 that God is immortal. So we needed a Savior that could die. An actual death. We also needed a Savior that could take and live a life that we cannot live, die a death that we could not die, and rise again in the power that we do not have. Jesus Christ experienced, as was read for us in the Scripture reading today, He experienced everything in life. He was tempted and tried in every way. He suffered in every way that 
you and I have and will suffer and will go through. And therefore, because he suffered as a man in our place, he is able to sympathize and help us in our time of need. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 2 makes that very clear, that we have in heaven today a Savior who is a God-man, perfect God and perfect man. And as we call out to him in prayer and in anguish of heart, he hears and he understands. He sympathizes completely with our plights. The third reason that Jesus had to be a man is because somebody had to live a perfect life. Some human being had to live a perfect life. Second Corinthians chapter six or chapter five verse twenty one teaches us that God became man so that we could have the righteousness of God. Jesus lived a perfect life, and when you and I put our trust in him, we're putting the trust in somebody in our place lived from birth to death in every event an absolutely perfect life. His motivations were perfect. His actions were perfect. His emotions were perfect. His deeds were perfect. He kept the law to perfection. And you and I need that today because he did that in our place. The Bible calls this doctrine justification, where we have been given by grace through faith the righteousness of Christ. And that's why we can stand before God. So we needed a man to come. We needed a man to be able to die the death that we can't die. We needed a man in our place to live the life that we can't live. And we needed a man who could intercede for us in heaven today, who completely, totally understands what you and I are going through. And therefore, he is a perfect high priest. And even when we utter thoughts and groans and words that cannot be understood, the Holy Spirit of God takes those words to our perfect intercessor, and we find grace and we find mercy in our hour of need. He had to be a man. But he also had to be God. And may I remind you that I'm not saying he was half man and half God. I'm not saying that he was man sometimes and God sometimes. I'm saying what is unintelligible by you and I is that he was perfect man and perfect God, or as the creed says, very God and very, very and man at the same time. But he had to also be God. Why? I think of three reasons again. Number one, only God can save. As good as any human being is, only God can save. Jonah says in Jonah 2, 9, that salvation is from the Lord. The only one that can save is God. The only one that can forgive us our sins. The only one that has the right and authority to redeem us and to make us his children 
is God himself. He's the only one that can eternally save us. We can go through patterns of rehabilitation. We can go through different disciplines of penance. But only God can forgive and forgive eternally. The second reason is Jesus had to be God is because his sacrifice on the cross had to have infinite value. We don't understand this, or at least I'll just admit right now, I don't understand this. I've preached it before, I believe it in all my heart, but I don't understand it. But the very sin that I commit has eternal consequences and requires eternal satisfaction. As the late Dr. R.C. Sproul would often be caught saying, our sin has cosmic implications. The slightest sin, the slightest little white lie, as we might say, the thing that we do that is so insignificant, we don't even think of it as sin, has eternal consequences, and it needed an eternal sacrifice. People have asked me sometimes in Q&A, how could Jesus pay for our sins in a few hours on the cross? And the answer is, because it was not just a man on the cross, it was God on the cross. I can't explain that. But Jesus Christ, as God, suffered eternally for your sin and my sin. Only God can save. Only God can save eternally and infinitely. And thirdly, only God has the power of life and death. You say, well, Pastor Jim, how does that involve Jesus? Do you remember what Jesus said in John 10? We pre I preached on it just a few months ago. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you don't take my life from me. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. Beloved, if a human being alone had gone into that grave after being taken down from the cross, there'd still be a body in that grave. But Jesus Christ, as the God-man, could raise himself from the dead. He had the power of divinity. We could go on with other things as to why Jesus, out of necessity, had to be conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. I pointed to one of the facts that in heaven today is the perfect God-man. When you and I pass from this life and we enter eternity as his, as his blood-bought children, we will see Jesus Christ, the God-man. We will see the scars on his hands. We will see the, thorn, the, the, the spear hole in the side. We will see the risen, glorified Jesus in person. And in, G in heaven today is a God-man who is a perfect mediator, that's why Paul would say there is no mediator 
between God and man except the man, Christ Jesus. Let us be clear that we are commanded and we enjoy the comfort and the prayers of God's people. But let's be absolutely clear. The only prayer that is going to take your heart and mold it and shape it to the glory of God and cause your life to be lived to the praise of God is the prayers of the God-man in heaven, Jesus Christ. With one part of that being, he reaches down to our frailty and our humanness. And out of that part of his being, he hangs on to his Father, the Ancient of Days, and he intercedes for us. Lord willing, I, I don't know, I, I, I just got this on my heart that someday I want to spend an exhaustive time on the present ministry of Jesus. I believe it's the, the one doctrine in the church that we don't talk about enough. If you went into a Christian library, you'd find maybe a half a dozen books ever written on it. And this is not to demean the cross of Christ and the life of Christ, but, beloved, our hearts are only encouraged to know that we have an intercessor, an advocate in heaven today, who's praying for you today, who's interceding with the Father today. And this is because of the Spirit, Holy Spirit's conception and the virgin birth. We have a God-man. Would you turn with me again to Hebrews chapter 2 where Dick read for us this morning and just let me conclude by allowing the scriptures themselves to be our application. Hebrews chapter 2. Hear the word of the Lord again in verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Verse 17 summarizes two points that I've made. Number one, Jesus had to be made like us in human flesh that he might serve us well as our high priest in heaven. And secondly, that he might be able to die as touching his divinity and die and pay the satisfaction for our sin. That's what that big word propitiation means. It means that the wrath of God was taken away when his son paid for our sins on Calvary's cross. As you and I think of Christmas, as we sing carols, as we gather with family, at least those of us who can, I hope that the idea of the so-called virgin birth takes on a sense of glory, a sense of brilliance, 
conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Why? So I can have an intercessor in heaven for me today. And I can have someone who paid fully, completely, the demands and justice of God in my place. And all that together means that the virgin birth and the conception of the Holy Spirit produce someone I can have total confidence in. My salvation is secure because God died. Now, you know I think that's wrong, what I just said. God in Christ died to pay the penalty of his own justice for my place. That means my salvation is secure. The second aspect of confidence is I have someone in heaven that's always ready to listen to me. Always ready to hear my cry. Always ready to intercede. Always ready to help. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we confess our belief in you. You are our Father, you are the creator of heaven and earth. And we believe in your one and only Son. Conceived by the Holy Spirit. Born of the Virgin Mary. Suffered under, Ponti under Pontius Pilate. Was dead and buried. And on the third day rose again. And he ever liveth to make intercession and is able to save to the uttermost those who come to him. We worship you, Jesus. Father, we bow down before your wisdom. And we pray that you would encourage our hearts as we leave this place knowing that our Savior is no longer in Bethlehem, no longer in Jerusalem, no longer on the cross, no longer in the grave, but has ascended at the right hand of God. And we look forward to the day when we will see you face to face. Amen.